On September 20th, 2010, Isabel Wilkerson spoke with us about her best-selling book, The Warmth of Other Sons, the epic story of America's great migration. Quoting her from the interview, The book is about the migration experiences of three people who became representative of the larger whole, which was essentially the defection of six million African Americans from the South to the North to the Midwest and the West from 1915 near World War I until 1970 when the South began to truly change. Here's more from Isabel Wilkerson. Tell us something about Ida Mae Brandon Gladney. Where did she come from? Did you meet her? Why did you pick her? She was from Chickasaw County, Mississippi. She was uh, the wife of a sharecropper where they were working the land of a planter in that county uh, during the dep- just before the Depression. And, and once the Depression hit, they were still there. She was terrible at picking cotton. And that was one of the things that actually was quite interesting to me. I never thought about a person being good or bad at it. It turned out that she was really bad at it and was, uh, and was uh, glad to tell you that. Uh, she had um, a, a wonderful way of incorporating both the South and the North uh, into her psyche. She never changed her accent from the moment she arrived in Chicago. She spent more years in Chicago, three times more years in Chicago than she did in Mississippi. And yet, when I met her, I could barely understand her the first time. By the time I spent a little bit of time with her, I could almost imitate her. And so how long did she live in Mississippi, and how long did she live in Chicago? She left, she left Mississippi when she was in her mid-20s. Um, she left, uh, the family left because there had been... Uh, at the beating of, of a cousin, a cousin of theirs, of her husband, was, was beaten nearly to death over a theft that he did not commit. This is the turkey story? Yes. And Would you tell that whole story? Uh, one particular night, when her hus- before her husband had returned from his errands, uh, there was pounding at the door of her cabin. And uh, she had two young ones, and she had a sister-in-law living with her, so she was surprised to be getting this kind of uh, noise up front. There were a posse of men at her door, and they were looking for a cousin of hers named Joe Lee, cousin of her husband's named Joe Lee. She said Joe Lee wasn't there. She didn't know that he actually had uh, come into the house and then gone through the back way to get away from the posse. Uh, she, so she didn't know anything about what he'd done. When uh, later on, when the husband got back home, she told him what had occurred, and he went up to try to find out what had occurred. It was too late. Uh, Joe Lee had already been captured, and he was beaten with chains uh, so badly that his uh, clothes had adhered to his skin, and uh, he was thrown in jail instead of taken to a doctor. And it was her husband who was one of the people, one of the men, uh, the male sharecroppers, who went to retrieve him. And after seeing what had happened to his cousin, he then went home to his wife and he said, this is the last crop we're making. What did they do then? They then quietly, between the two of them, began to try to divest of the, what little they had. I mean, the wash pots and um, the, the kerosene lamps, the bed pallets, the things that they had. They then uh, quietly went to their, uh, her mother's house to position themselves to leave. And as soon as the cotton was, was all picked, they got on the train, the night train, 
out of Okalona to uh, up north to first uh, landing in Chicago, so briefly in Milwaukee, and then ultimately um, settling in Chicago. And what year did they actually leave that Mississippi? That was 1937. And by that time, how many had left the South? There would have been uh, over, there would have been about a million people who would have left by that time, because there were about a half million in the first World War One. Uh, migration. Then there were another half million, 480,000 or so, who left during the Depression years, which is when she left, which is actually the smallest number for each each decade. It really took off during World War II, where the, that was the largest migration. Each decade, or at each period of time during this migration, people who were studying it, the sociologists primarily, were assuming that it would be over. They were looking at what, were the, what was the impetus for it, and they were thinking, the economics of the North were the main impetus. And yes, that was a precipitating factor. But ultimately, once the door had been opened by the North, because World War I was the beginning of it, World War I was a time when, because of the war in Europe, immigration had essentially come to a halt. And the, all of the, uh, the, the workforce, the workers that were feeding and the, the, the steel mills and the foundries and, and all of the factories of the north then had no labor. In the, and these northern industries then began looking to the south for the cheap labor. And that meant they had to go to African Americans and began trying to recruit them to go north. What was for Ida Mae Brandon Gladney lifelike otherwise in Mississippi? What kind of things couldn't she do that, say, white people could do? Well, for one thing, she very rarely ventured out beyond where she was because life was very controlled. I mean, they had so little, uh, so little free time because they were working in the field. That's one thing. So her life was fairly isolated. But whenever she would go out, there were any number of things. Every aspect of life was, was, was controlled then. There were, there were no, for example, the access to a physician was impossible. Physicians did not come out to the country where she was. She would not have had access to that. Overall in the South, Jim Crow had uh, rules and laws that are, seem so arcane now. I mean, in some places it was, it, it was illegal for a black person and a white person to play checkers together. Um, in certain places, and she did not herself work in such a place because she worked in the field, but uh, there were, uh, the blacks and whites couldn't walk up the same staircase in certain places where they might have worked together. In certain courthouses, there was a black Bible and a white Bible to swear to tell the truth on. Did, uh, do you hear that story more than once? I heard that more than once, but there was a case where that it became an issue because they had, in, in North Carolina, because the judge, they, they couldn't find the black Bible. So it became, it became front page news in one of the North Carolina newspapers with, that I came upon. And they couldn't find the black Bible, so they had to uh, halt the court proceedings. And the judge said, well, you know, we, we might as well follow what the law is and let's find the Bible. What had happened was a black person had taken the stand and they, they needed to find the right Bible for him to swear to tell the truth on. Did you ever ask any of the old-time white people why they had such rules? I didn't spend a lot of time talking with uh, a lot of the white people in this. There was a lot written about that already. And my focus was on trying to find the people who were not talked to. In other words, the, the, uh, much of the material about the white perspective was, was widely disseminated. There were many, many, many wonderful books about it. Wilbur Cash, The Mind of the South. Um, there are so many wonderful things that have been written um, that give a, a, a wonderful sense of how uh, people were viewing it. The newspapers wrote 
endlessly, editorialists wrote endlessly about it, and I actually quote many of those in the, as epigraphs in the chapters. Got one here. Yeah. Uh, this is an editorial from the Macon, Georgia Telegraph, September 1916. Everybody seems to be asleep about what is going on right under our noses. That is, everybody but those farmers who have awakened up on mornings recently to find every Negro over 21 on his place gone to Cleveland, to Pittsburgh, to Chicago, to Indianapolis. And while our very solvency is being sucked out beneath us, we go about our affairs as usual. That sounds like a liberal editorial in, in, the, in the Deep South. Why would, why would they have that? In a place like Maine. Well, there was great angst because if nothing was done to keep these people from leaving, in other words, if the conditions did not change to make it more possible for them to stay, they were going to lose their great source of labor. And that cheap labor was the underpinnings of the Southern economy. They depended upon that. It's an it, expensive proposition of, of, and, and great peril, if you think about it, to plant an entire field of cotton and not know what would happen to it. I mean, I did, I, at a certain point with this book, I was reading a book a day and, in research, and I read all about cotton production, and it's extremely difficult. It's a hazardous, difficult job. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong. It requires just the right amount of rain and not too much rain. It requires just the right number of, of days of sunshine, but not too, met, too much sunshine. It, it, there's so many factors that they were dependent upon, that actually any farmer is dependent upon, that, the, that the, the margin for error was so great, and they needed the, the hands available in order to pick the cotton once it was there. They could not afford to be losing this this labor. Did I read near the end that you and Ida Mae went back down to uh, Mississippi to the yes. cotton fields? Late nineties, yes. What were the circumstances? The circumstances were that I wanted to go back with all of them, and uh, her family and she were, were were game, and they I made arrangements for us to go back. We drove down the Natchez Trace Parkway to get there. We, we first flew into Memphis, and then we drove down uh, Highway 61, legendary, uh, and then made it to the Natchez uh, Natchez Park Trace uh, Trace Parkway. And um, as we were driving and drew closer to the county where she lived, we came upon some cotton fields. I wanted to go back at the same time she would have left, which would have been um, about now. It was fall of, of the year, which is uh, the high picking season uh, in, in Mississippi, uh, where she lived. And uh, so we saw this cotton field wide open. There were no cars. I mean, it's still isolated land, really. And she wanted to get out and pick. And um, she said, let's stop and pick some. And I said, are you sure that we can do this? I mean, this land belongs to somebody, and we're in Mississippi, you know, besides. And she said, oh, they're not going to care what little bit we want to pick. And so she jumped out of the car and went out into, you know, into the rows of cotton and started picking. And I went with her, still wary, and she was, seemed to be giddy. I mean, she hated picking cotton when she had to, but now that she didn't have to, it's almost like you couldn't stop her. What was her life like in Chicago? In Chicago, they had a really hard time making the adjustment. They had arrived as a part of a group of people from the South, of those migrants, with the least education, the least skills, and it didn't translate as well, and particularly for women. The men could find work because strong backs were valued. They could find work in the slaughterhouses and the foundries and the steel mills. She had a much harder time because there weren't as great a need. There also were many immigrant groups that they were competing against. 
there were Poles and Hungarians and Irish and Swedes, all kinds of Germans, who also were newly arrived. And they, they often were further along in the queue, particularly for the women when it came to domestic work. Clearly, working in an office in a typing pool was not going to be something she would even be able to do. She, it took a very long time for her to be able to find work. And it took a long time for her husband to find work. At first, he was hauling ice up four and five flights of those cold water flats on the south side of, of Chicago. Um, and he was willing to do it because he'd had to haul that much in cotton, so it was something that he did. But he couldn't, it wasn't enough really to take care of the family. They moved a lot. They moved from place to place to place as they tried to find um, um, the, the right location for them that they could afford. They had a difficult time making adjustments. How did she feel about the move in the end? In the end, she was the kind of person to accept her lot, no matter what it would have been. But for all of the people in the book, there are many mistakes that they might have made in their lives, but moving from the South was not one of them. They didn't regret it? No, all. not for a minute. And you say she died, and there's a little note in the back in 2004, and that they have, the family has a room that's laid out it's in her, her, it her bed. It's her bedroom. It's just her bedroom remained untouched. Still to this day? Just untouched. No one could bear to go in it. Why? Well, she, she was the matriarch of the family. She was, she was one of the wisest and most beautiful people I've ever met in my life. Doing this book changed me in so many ways. She had a way of, a, a kind of Zen perspective, if you can say, if you can imagine it, of accepting what was and recognizing what she couldn't change and moving on and not living in the past. And she was beloved by everyone who knew her. And I know that that's said about a lot of people, but she was just a special person. I mean, when we returned south, for example, one of the things we did was we looked up one of the people, one of the, she was being courted by two men, uh, which is what, where the, the book begins when it comes to her narrative. And her decision of which of those two men was going to ultimately be the, the uh, deciding point for her life. Had she gone with, with one man, she would end up going up to, to Chicago. She didn't know it at the time, but that's what would have been her lot, and that's what she chose. But the other man decided to stay. And when we went back to Mississippi, we looked him up, and we found him. And he instantly recognized her. It had been 60 years, and it's as if all those decades and the miles hadn't meant anything. And he saw her instantly, recognized her, and he just said, How are you, Ida Mae? And he reached for her arm. It was just a beautiful moment. And then his wife came out. <laughs> <laughs> Were you there? Yes, oh, of course. Part of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, how did you, what was it about her when you met her? And how did you meet her that made you choose her as one of three out of 1,200? Yeah. Well, her, what I did was, you know, I went to many, many places I described to you. And one of the places that I went was uh, the uh, retiree, boards or of the uh, uh, or uh, unions of various uh, trades and so I went to the uh, the retired the 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 workers people who had been retired from the CTA the Chicago Transit Authority went to postal workers and such um, so when I went to the retirees meeting for the CTA I passed around the uh, the flyer that I'd passed around. I made my little statement. And there was a woman there who uh, signed up. There were many people who signed up because most of them were from the South or had relatives from the South. And a woman said, I didn't actually make the decision to come to the South, to come from the South to, uh, to uh, Chicago, but my mother did. 
And so it was her daughter who signed her up. And when I met with her, she was wonderful. Do you remember the moment when you started thinking about doing this? I can't say what the moment was because I've been living it all my life. My parents migrated from the South to Washington, D.C., my mother from Georgia, my father from Southern Virginia. Uh, in Washington, it's where they met, married, and then had me. So without the great migration, I wouldn't be here. I don't know who you'd be talking to. Uh, so I've lived with it all my life. I grew up with people from North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, all around me in the neighborhood where I grew up. And I was surrounded by the, the language, the food, the music, the ambitions, too, of the people who had migrated from the South, a lot of competition about whose child would go to which school, Catholic school, school across the park. So it's been with me all this time. But I think that when it comes to the actual writing of a book, it probably started very likely after I'd gotten out and been a reporter for the New York Times and started to talk to people in other parts of the country. I was Chicago bureau chief for the New York Times. And I would go to Chicago, I'd be in Cleveland, I'd be in Detroit, and I'd begin to hear that there were similar migration experiences that people had had. No one talked about it as a migration experience. They would just talk about it as, well, I can't talk with you today or this weekend we're going to have to go back to Mississippi where there's a family union or there's a funeral I have to go to. And so I began to connect the dots and to see that this was so much bigger than just my experience to Washington or the experience to Chicago or even to Los Angeles. It was a national outpouring of people. You said earlier this changed your life. In what way? It changed my life because it helped to answer so many questions for me about how the country came to be, about how African Americans uh, made it to the, to the North and West. In other words, if you, the majority of people that you might meet who are African American in the North and the West are descended from this great migration. That's an enormous thing that I don't think people even thought about. It also reminded me of how much we have in common with one another. When I was growing up uh, here in Washington, uh, my mother went to the trouble of making sure that I went to the best school she could find, which was a school west of the park. We lived east of the park, it was west of the park. And she actually made uh, arranged for a cab to take me there. I was you know, five years old, and she would tell the cab driver, now don't pick anyone else up. Uh, you know, this is, I see your cab number, I'm going to pay you, bring her right back home. And the cab was always there waiting for me. The cab would always look like it was empty because it had a five-year-old in it. So um, she always wanted to make sure they didn't pick up anyone else. When I got to the school, though, I would run into all kinds of people, people who were from all over the country, from Nepal, they're often diplomats' children, from, uh, El Sal from Sal San Salvador or from Chile or from Finland, from all over. And even those who were American-born were, were descended from people from Ireland, um, Scotland, or wherever they might have been, Germany or Russia. And on certain days, particularly like St. Patrick's Day, there were all stories that people were telling about life in the old country or grandparents that had done this or done that or the food. And I felt at that time that I didn't have any stories to tell. And it turned out that actually I did and that there were many, many great stories that came out of this great migration. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.